This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of Sigarthur and the Maiden King. We'll see that unsportsmanlike conduct definitely includes tearing off someone's arm and beating them with it. That, when staffing your Viking ship, you definitely want to go with the most attractive male model Viking warriors. And that when choosing your weapon, it's never a bad idea to shove way too much metal down your pants. The creature this week is the Pope Lick Monster. And it's neither a Pope, a Lick, or really even a monster. This is Myths and Legends, episode 310, The Maiden King. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. The story this week is a 15th century Icelandic saga. We'll jump right in with the advisor to the king trying to put a hit out on a couple of children. He doesn't want to play in the official ball game. Ulfr looked back and forth, then turned down the alleyway. There, at the end, near a pile of refuse, a shadow loomed. You the guy? You Melznadi? Ulfir glanced around, again, furtively. Am I the assassin that you, Ulfir, the advisor to the king, hired to kill some kids? Yes. Yes, I am the enslaved man said. Ulfir's eyes nearly popped from his head. Okay, okay, wow. It was like the man was trying to be killed. The enslaved man shrugged. They burned down his village and took him from his family, so yeah, he really cared about the advisor's discretion. The only thing he liked more than messing with them was killing them, though. Ulfir wanted him to attack some people? He'd do it. No questions asked. You're probably wondering why I, the king's advisor, am hiring a man like you, with the strength of twelve men yourself, to kill two of the prince's playmates. The advisor twirled his mustache. Not really, the enslaved man replied, but Allfair continued. You see, these two are brothers, Hogni and Sigmunder. They're friends with the king's son. The king's son spends so much time with them that they're basically foster brothers. And they showed up at these games and played with the prince and his men. The thing is, the prince's trainers didn't like these nobodies showing up at their practice. These kids had very little in the way of clothing. They were very impoverished. Anyway, the king's men, the prince's trainers, would tear the clothes off these kids during the sporting events. It was hilarious. Malznati said, funny. Uh, hey, I don't need to know all this backstory. Ulfir, the advisor, kept going. The prince would always clothe them with his old stuff, though. It was infuriating. Why? Malznati asked. Why? Why? Because Ulfir didn't need to explain his why. Did Melznati want the money or not? Melznati said he didn't get paid? The advisor nodded. Oh, yeah, well. Then he commanded Melznati to kill one or more of the kids during the game today. He would teach them to wear clothes above their station. Melznati shrugged, sure, whatever. He said goodbye to Allfear and left to go get ready for the match. They did that awkward thing where they said goodbye but kept walking in the same direction. They half smiled and nodded to each other. When Melznati would speed up to try to outpace Allfear, 
Ulfir would speed up to try to pass Melznati, so Melznati would slow down to let him pass, but Ulfir would also slow down to let Melznati move ahead. About the time they both entered the field, Melznati realized that Ulfir, too, was playing in the game against the prince, the boys, and all their teammates. And that's how Ulfir, the advisor, ended up beaten to death with his own severed arm. You see, he and Melznati really went for it. They tried to kill those kids. The kids just tried harder. And when their try included literally ripping Ulfir's arm off and beating him until his skull cracked, when the boys realized what was happening, Melznati took off in the resulting outrage for, yeah, let's call it unsportsmanlike conduct. The prince, Sigarthur, helped Hogni and Sigmunder escape into the forest before the king arrived. But the king was livid, declaring Hogni and Sigmunder to be outlaws. Then he maybe had a long talk with the players about just why they thought it was cool and fun to hassle impoverished children by tearing their limited clothes. Some Viking leaders go for power. They stack the deck with the biggest, most jacked guys. Some go for cruelty. You can win a fight without the fight. If they're scared, you're going to do something terrible after. Sigarthur, the prince who saved his friends, went for hotness. When he came of age, his dad gave him a castle, an earldom, and three ships, in case he ever wanted to go raiding. He did, but not in the way that his dad hoped, the violent, murdery way. He made a tour of the kingdom, picking up the hottest guys. And I'm not even joking, the story says he picked up the most handsome guys for his boats, and then, well, they made the rounds. With the three ships at 40 guys a ship, it was like 120 romance novel covers riding into town, hair flowing in the wind, shirts open, and they did pretty well for themselves. In fact, the kings and nobles hated it when their daughters disappeared for three days straight. But Sigarthur's father was such a powerful king that no one said anything. They did raid sometimes, and they won. Maybe because he was a great fighter. Maybe because his enemies were blinded by his glinting, oiled Dwayne Johnson pecs. Who knows? The takeaway here is that he's very much better known for his exploits with the ladies than on the battlefield. Then he arrived in Tartaria. Tartaria is basically Asia. It stretches from the Ural Mountains up to and including Japan. So, some big range, culturally. We're just going to flatten all that out and say that it had one king, Hergir, who had three daughters, Hildur, Signy, and the eldest, Ingi Gerther, who we're going to call Ingi from now on, like the story does. The king, Hergir, was starting to get antsy about succession. His two brothers had disappeared mysteriously while out hunting, and so he remarried after the death of his wife. And the stepmother made things a little weird when she tried to set up her brothers with their new nieces. The daughters refused, and the king agreed. And that was that. Until the king died the very next day. Now, Ingi knew what was up. She knew her stepmom was a troll. Like, that's not a euphemism. She was an actual evil creature from the forest. And yeah, she murdered the king when she didn't get her way. But the death of the king did not go the way she thought. Ingi was a savvy political operator and got the swords of the castle on her side to the point where she could demand that her troll stepmother exile herself, never to return. 
Unfortunately, she also let the woman get the last word in. And yeah, when fighting witch trolls, don't let them do that. Ingi's sisters would be turned into a sow and a foal, and they wouldn't be able to escape from that curse as long as the troll's stepmom's brothers lived. And Ingi? Ingi would be faithful to no one. She would have many suitors, but she would destroy every one of them. She would be so greedy that she would covet everything she saw. And these statements would hold until someone smashed the egg, holding the troll's stepmom's spirit on Ingi's nose. But that wouldn't happen because the troll stepmom looked after the thing herself. Ingi held up a hand. That would be quite enough. She looked her stepmother square in the eyes. Ingi, it seemed, knew some of the magic too. Those would be the troll stepmother's last words for as long as she lived. The stepmother opened her mouth and yawned. She kept yawning after that. Her eyes grew wide. She covered her mouth and ran from the room. Why Ingi didn't do that like five minutes earlier and not get the curse, who knows. Now, I've talked in the past how I think Maiden King is kind of a silly term, but here it is again. Ingi assumed the role of sole ruler for the kingdom. She figured if she was destined to destroy all of her suitors, why not skip the whole process and just rule on her own? She was a skilled statesperson, she was fearsome, and no one dared oppose her will. And the Viking guys, uh, they loved it. They couldn't resist. They were those cartoon wolves with the bulging eyes and the tongue rolling out of their mouths, and they sailed to Ingi's kingdom in droves. The Viking king's boot crunched in the snow. He was a big, hairy, 40-year-old dude looking for love or something. And there was a 17-year-old princess in these parts? Maiden king, Ingi responded, not breaking eye contact. The Viking king said, yeah, that's cute. The ringlets of mead making their way down his beard. Look, he was just out raiding and it was winter time and oh no, could he stay there? Ingi looked his men over his armed, seasoned men, the flecks of blood from the most recent raids still on their cloaks. She understood the implication. If she didn't let him winter here, he would take the city by force and enslave her. She smiled. As you wish. The thing about getting drunk with people who hate you is, don't do that. Ingi wasn't unprepared for visitors. It was a common tactic, Guys showing up and all but forcing the Maiden King to accept them for the winter and to take them as her husband. Well, she offered them the same level of choice when it came to waking up the following morning after a night of heavy drinking with people holding knives next to them. All their heads were tied to the stockade. Of course, the danger and the intrigue only led to more guys stopping by trying to lock the Maiden King into marriage. When Ingi first heard of the witch's curse, she thought it was a curse. Like, she would be torn by love and forced to murder match after match. She didn't anticipate just how much she would want to kill the interlopers. The men who came in were big, vicious, and vulgar. They were so used to riding the waves and taking whatever they wanted, they never once thought of someone other than themselves. Between all the visitors wanting her hand in marriage, 
and the murdering of all the visitors wanting her hand in marriage, Ingi didn't have time to suss out all the little details of whether what was happening was a curse or simply a prophecy. Once she had control of the kingdom, after the disappearance of her uncles, the death of her father, and the transformation of her sisters, she found a strength within her. People listened to her, and the Maiden King, as she was called, could shape the world according to how she thought it should be. Her kingdom was just, peaceful, and prosperous. It was good. Well, good for everyone but the boorish men who tried to force her into a marriage. Meanwhile, somewhere on the sea, a curious Sig Arthur stroked his chin. Maiden King, huh? What does she look like? A man unfurled a piece of parchment with a crudely drawn stick figure on it. Sig Arthur grinned. All right, very nice. He waved to his men, set course for Tartaria. The gold-trimmed sails unfurled, the golden dragon pointed toward Asia, and several poses were struck on board as the handsome Vikings rode the waves to go seek the hand of the Maiden King. We'll see what happens when our hero meets the Maiden King, but that will be right after this. The Maiden King walked in, and the room quieted. All right, this Sigarther who just sailed into port? What was the plan? Ingi asked. What of the new arrival? Standard murder package? Spiked wine and stabbings? Heads on the pike and all that? The advisors said, yeah, that would work. But they looked at each other. But what? Ingi asked. She had a kingdom to run? Was this guy going to leave there in pieces, or did they have something they wanted to say? The advisors walked to the window. There's something she should see. He, Sigarther, he's really good looking. Ingi said, okay? Like, really, really ridiculously good looking, they said. And Ingi made it to the window. She spotted Sigarther down by the docks. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, her advisors replied. Okay, uh, new plan, Ingi informed her people. So, Ingi said to Sigarther, elephant in the room. <laughs> What's an elephant? Sigarther shook the amazement away from his eyes. Ingi said, okay. Sigarther had a reputation. Sigarther <laughs> grinned. <laughs> yeah, he did. Then he caught himself. Oh, uh, not deserved, though. Oh, so all those women who blushingly spoke of your prowess and the be- Oh, no, 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 that was deserved. Wink. Sigarther winked. And those same women who now hate you because you left two days later without a word? Ingi studied Sigarther's face. Those are liars is what they are, Sigarther said. Also, I mean, if he was being real, he wasn't the only one who had a history with unhappy exes. <laughs> Ingi laughed. None of her exes were unhappy. Because they're dead, Sigarther specified. But they're not unhappy, 
Ingi smiled. Look, I'll be real, Sigarthur said, taking her hands. I'm in love with you. I want to marry you. I see you, a powerful maiden king, and I don't want to take that. I want to rule alongside you and defend this kingdom with my glistening horde of warriors with fantastic bone structure and moisturized skin. Ingi seemed stunned. She blushed. She said she imagined he said that to all the girls. Sigarthur said, well, he was going to be real. He did, but he also meant it. This time, Ingi looked into his eyes. She breathed deep. Okay. Sigarthur's jaw dropped. What? Ingi smiled. Okay. She accepted. Sigarthur said, what? Seriously? Ingi nodded. Seriously. Sigarthur reeled on his bench. They were getting married. They were getting married. All Ingi's people in attendance cheered. Sigarthur's guys would have, but they turned in early. They got a solid eight hours every night. They didn't want bags under their eyes. That was an amazing ceremony, Sigarthur grinned. Wedding, feast, everything. Now we are about to have an amazing night. He strode toward the bed and looked around. Was it sleepy in here or was it just him? He made it to the bed, but that was about it. He was snoring and Ingi rose, put on a robe, and informed her servants that the drugged wine had worked. The next afternoon, Sigarthur found her. Hello, my wife. Ingi grimaced. Are we, though? Sigarthur's eyes widened. Oh, so they hadn't. Ingi shook her head. No, they did not. Sigarthur grimaced. He was so sorry. That had never happened to him before. He would do anything to make it up to her. I want that sword you always wear, she said. Sigarthur looked to his sword. The one from his dad? The one that he got that might be magic? Ingi nodded. He unhooked it from his belt. Uh, yeah, sure. Husband and wife. What I have is yours. Not yet. Not technically. Ingi accepted the sword. Sigarthur grinned again. About that. Uh, what was she doing tonight? Turned out, not that. Again, she drugged the wine, and again, Sigarthur passed out before the deal could be sealed. The next day, he gave up his standard, the gold-fringed flag a guy always carried before him, and that night, he was suspicious and had Ingi drink the wine first. She held it together just a few seconds longer than him, and her attendants carried her out. The following day, he gave up his ship to Ingi, who was growing impatient with him. All this was grounds for divorce. He knew that, right? And that's actually true. In those societies, failure to act as a married couple meant that the wife could leave her husband. That night, he wasn't having any of it. He knocked the wine aside and he rushed the bed and found a spear to the back of his neck. Ingi was smirking. Welp, the jig was up. Sigarthur looked over his shoulder and saw the 12 enslaved men with weapons that had been hiding in the Maiden King's walls. He didn't anticipate them, 
But they also didn't anticipate that, as the son of a Viking king, he was both a lover and a fighter. He grabbed the spear, and then the man attached to the spear. He beat two of the men to death with a third, before the Maiden King's real warriors stormed the room. A couple dozen were dead, and Sigarther streaming blood, before he managed to make it to his ships. His flagship was already under the control of Ingi, but he had nine more. He tried to rally the men and invade, but the coast was too heavily guarded. Ingi had anticipated his every move. Sigarther wasn't giving up, though. He was going to do what all Viking heroes do when they face an obstacle. He was running to his dad crying because she was mean. My wife, Ingi, the Maiden King, shamed me. I want an army to take back what's mine. Sigarther said to his dad in a tone that definitely wasn't whiny and entitled. <laughs> Your wife, that's not what I heard. The old king laughed. Sigarther said that, what was that supposed to mean? The dad said, look, that woman, she's tough. Sigarther got off easy. He only lost a ship, a sword, and any shred of his reputation. He still had his castle that his dad had given him and his earldom. He should just come home and relax. He could marry again no problem because, well, you know. Sigarther said that that wasn't what happened. Then he got an idea. He did still have his castle and earldom. He slapped his dad on the back and ran from the room smiling. Hey there, Sigarther said down at the docks to the man who was just finishing up a deal with another merchant. My name is Jonas, the man whose name is Jonas in the original, said to Sigarther the prince. Sorry, let me get back to my ship. I'm carrying this wheel. He turned back to the other merchant. Thanks for all you've shown us. This is how we feel. We're just going to go with this one wheel today. Jonas coughed, and he kept coughing. Sigarther shook his head. Wow, that guy was quite the weezer. Anyway, Sigarther said he would take it. The merchant, Jonas, said take what exactly? The wheel he had just bought? That was basically worthless. It didn't even exist in the original. It was a bit. Yes, the wheel, Sigarther said but also everything. Sigarther's face grew grim as they walked to a lonely spot on the dock next to Jonas's ship. Sigarther looked down at the man. I'll take your life. Fifteen minutes later, Jonas waved goodbye to Sigarther. Sigarther, after clarifying that he wanted to buy Jonas's life and identity and all of his goods, oh, sorry he came off as creepy and murdery, did just that. It cost Sigarther his own identity, so Jonas the Merchant was now Jonas the Sigarther, the Prince, and Sigarther the Prince was now Jonas the Merchant. And he was on his way back to Tartaria. We'll see the couple take a magic carpet ride, but that will once again, be right after this. Hey, Jonas the Merchant, how's it going? And you are? The Maiden King? Ingi eyed the merchant suspiciously. 
He had asked her down here to show her rare and mysterious goods from all around the world, and she came surrounded by a retinue, so his attempt to get her to act like he didn't care who she was didn't play as well as he thought it did. Ingi paused. She did want to see the item. The magic carpet? Jonas, a.k.a. the not-Jonas Sigarther, said yes, he did have a magic carpet. Here, here, take a seat. It was a carpet you could command to fly, if you only knew the words. Rocks with runes were sewn into it, and they imbued it with magical powers. Ingi took a seat on the carpet. What did it cost? Jonas said, oh, only her hand in marriage. Ingi replied, wow, look at him shooting his shot. It was a stretch, to say the least. The thought of her marrying a merchant. But let's take this thing for a test drive. Sigarthur stood on the carpet and said the magic words. It shot into the air, and as it did, Sigarthur revealed himself. He wasn't Jonas at all. He was her husband, Sigarthur, and she was now his captive. First, don't kidnap people. Just don't. Second, especially don't kidnap people from a precariously balanced position atop a flying carpet after you've revealed the words to control said carpet. Ingi swept his legs, and Sigarthur went flying down toward the sea. He splashed in the water. Ingi told her guards to kill that guy, and Sigarthur managed to scramble back to his ship while Ingi rode his magic carpet back to her place. You gave this guy your earldom in your castle, the old king said to Sigarthur. Sigarthur said that's only because he thought he was going to get a bigger one. Now, he needed an invasion force. The old king said he liked the new Sigarthur better. Jonas smiled and waved from the table. Sigarthur said that he, come on, he needed to go conquer Asia, to go get his wife back. <laughs> wife, that's not what I heard. Jonas laughed. Ha, <laughs> good one, Sigarthur won. The old king high-fived his favorite son. Why does he get to be Sigarthur one? Sigarthur two shook his head. Whatever. He didn't give up his ships. He was going to take his 50 ships and leave. You're not going to invade Tartaria with 50 ships, the old king yelled after his now second favorite son. Sigarthur waved him off. He was going to go talk to the parents that still believed in him. Yeah, that's a really bad idea, Gerther said. Gerther, though she wasn't named in the beginning, was the mother of the two boys the advisor of the king put a hit out on during the ball game in the beginning of the podcast. It's a bad idea to try to invade Tartaria with 50 ships. All you'll really need are two men, she said, and handed Sigarther two bags. Sigarther looked at them. One was empty, the other was a bag of ashes. She told him where he could find the two guys and what he needed to do with them, and it was basically impossible. Sigarther smiled awkwardly and left the house. Well, that was weird. Granted, the woman had always been a friend to him, but just two guys? Still, he looked back at his track record. Three bad nights the news of which apparently traveled faster than he ever could, 
and now Merchant Jonas being his dad's favorite cigarther, all that had landed him nowhere. Maybe it was time to try something crazy. So crazy it was. The first stop was to find Horther Hard Hard Butt. And while that sounds like it's just a euphemism for a slightly sweary nickname, it is, but it's also completely true and literal. As Sigarther, in a single ship with a skeleton crew, sailed up to the cliffside, he saw the man looming. Or it looked like a man. His name was Horther. The story says he was a weirdly shaped person, and yeah, he was. He, apparently, had jammed a bunch of metal down his pants, had it piled on his rear and on top of his shoulders. The story will tell us much later. He apparently has bags and bags of dwarven metal. It won't explain that. Feels like a strange detail to drop and then never mention again. But that should help give you a mental sketch for how this guy looks. He had lumpy linebacker shoulders and just a massive metal prosthetic butt. He yelled out that he would like passage, if Sigarther would half him. He was good at bracing sails. Sigarther was about to ask how the man knew his name, but then he remembered his witch mom and invited Horther aboard. He'd wait for Horther to come down off the cliff, but he wouldn't need to, because the man leapt, landing with a thud on board. He was Horther hard at, but he had a hard butt. The next stop was to find Velstagandi, and he doesn't have a cool nickname. Like the first guy, he wore a heavy cloak that hid most of his features, though his was made out of wolfskin. He yelled out, asking for passage, and Sigarther asked what his talent was. He was, apparently, great at treading water, which doesn't sound like a great talent, but I quickly learned that I have a different definition of treading water. When Velstagandi ran across the surface of the water like one of those frogs, the ship rocked, and Velstagandi found his way aboard. Unlike the first guy, he didn't have massive amounts of metal in his pants, but he did fight with a pair of billhooks, the curved knives used for cutting shrubberies. Sigarther told them their mission's end was Tartaria, but they had to make a stop along the way. Did either of them know how to find... Nutter? Now, Nutter was not the Nutter of the Butter fame, but rather the most gruesome, feared Viking leader of the age. And he was also drowning. Sigarther and his two men engaged Nutter and all of his ships. And the elderly woman was right. Sigarther didn't need 50 ships when he had those two. Velstagandi used his hook knives, and Horther his hardware, to keep the rest of the guys occupied. And Sigarther had taken on Nutter both men with swords in hand. They tumbled down into the ocean, but they were apparently shockingly dense because they landed on the ocean floor and just kept fighting. Sigarther started to panic, with his body screaming out for him to take a breath, but that's when he noticed bubbles. Bubbles coming from the empty bag, the one his witch mom had given him. He would take any bubbles and, kicking Nutter back, looked in the bag, and found air. He quickly put it over his head, and it cinched around his neck. Up above, the men heard the call. Sigarther was dead. Nutter emerged from the water, 
pulling himself up on the ship. We'll never surrender, Sigarther's two men yelled. Well, we're not attacking anymore, so congrats, no need to surrender, Nutter cried out. He stood atop his ship, the one coated in so much blood, and said that all of his guys, free to go. The war, the raiding, all of it was over. It's been fun, been real, been fun real. Nope, that's the wrong way to say that. They knew what he meant, though. They could take their own ships, have fun raiding. He was retiring for love. He only asked that, in their last act of loyalty to him, they spread the word around that Sigarther, the beautiful, beautiful man he was, was dead at the bottom of the ocean. May he decay slowly and selectively, so as to stay handsome as long as possible. Gonna be a short retirement, the two former crewmates of Sigarther said, readying their weapons and butt. Guys, Nutter whispered and lifted the skin at his neck. Sigarther's head peeked out. Guys, it's me. The men lowered their weapons and butt. Sigarther explained that a witch had given him a magic bag and it made it so he could breathe underwater and also look like Nutter for some reason. He didn't know quite how it worked, but it was magic, don't worry about it. Anyway, he won the fight. Everyone thought Sigarther was dead. Next stop, Tartaria. You are the Nutter who killed Sigarther, Ingi, the Maiden King, asked Nutter, a.k.a. Sigarther, when he landed in her kingdom under the guise of a shipwreck leaving him with only one ship and two men. Sigarther, in disguise, said he thought she would welcome him after that. From what he understood, she hated Sigarther, but it looked like she had been crying. Ingi said she was going to cut right to it. He heard about how it went for men who stayed in her kingdom, right? One version says that Sigarther replied, I'm not worried about a day that has not yet come. Which is nice, it's just really a longer way of saying I don't worry about anything because it's not worrying if it's happening or has happened to you. I'm going to murder you if you stay here. I do that to all the suitors, Ingi said. Almost all the suitors, Nutter replied with a wink. Ingi watched him go. She didn't waste time. She set them up in a house with a long, winding entrance. Velstagandi stopped them at the edge of the darkened room and told them to wait and feel the floor in front of them. There was no floor to feel. That was the point. The room was a big pit. Velstagandi took a running leap and hit the boards on the other side of the room. He tied a rope around his weapons and tossed them over the beam at the top. And Sigarther and Horther swung across. Sigarther shook his head. She was going to let them starve to death in a hole? Horther listened. No. No, she wasn't. He proceeded to jam his metal rear end on the wall and run the length of the platform, killing the 30 archers who had been waiting for the trio to fall. They piled the bodies in the hole and then joined Ingi at dinner, like nothing happened. They spent the winter avoiding murder attempts breaking new records each day for nights spent alive by guys. Finally, spring came, and after a winter of ducking them, Ingi finally called the trio into her presence once again. She wanted them to go out looking for something. Many somethings, as it would turn out. There were three of them, so they could do three jobs. 
The first was to track down her pigs. She didn't know where they were, and they had been lost eight years ago, so yeah, be back in a week before summer starts. Velstigandi nodded and took off. Horther was tasked with retrieving the horses. Same deal. All the horses, none of them hurt, back in a week. Nutter, a.k.a. Sig Arthur, had a different job. He needed to find the oxen, take a horn off its head for one of them, fill that horn with gold, and on a lake in his path, there will be a place for gathering eggs. He needed to bring back the gold and the eggs and present them to her. On the first night, in a hut, the men woke up to a snarling and crashing. Sigarther was fighting for his life. A wolf had gotten in and torn through his chest down to his ribs. He hadn't cried out because, you know, tough guy. But once the other two were awake, they beat the wolf until she had to flee. She ran to the door, turned into a crow, and flapped off. But not before Sigarther threw an axe at the door and clipped her wing. Sigarther started to worry that time was running short, so they decided to split up. And each of them did end up finding their herds. A stallion was watching over the horses and harassing one of the foals. Horther brought them to heal. Velstagani found the hogs and the boar that was harassing them, gathering them together, and Sigarther continued on his quest alone. But he had a feeling that the she-wolf was noteworthy, mainly because she turned into a bird. So he followed the blood trail. There, he found the oxen with three horns, and despite his injury, he managed to take his horn and hollow it out. The path of blood led up the hill, but as Sigarther looked up, he saw something awaited him there. A giant, a troll thirty feet high. Sigarther pulled his hand away from his side. Bloody. His wound had torn open again. The giant called out that Sigarther had cut off the arm of his sister, and he was going to pay. Sigarther tried to yell back that he had no context for that. He didn't know what the troll was talking about, but the troll wasn't going to trade words any longer. He leapt from the top of the hill. As the troll flew toward him, axe above his head with those action lines spreading out behind him all comic book style, Sigarther stuck his walking stick in the ground and stepped aside. The troll realized what was happening all too late. He contorted his body but he was still impaled on the walking stick. He hit the ground hard and dying and proceeded to roll down the rest of the hillside, breaking every bone in his body. Sigarther shook his head and continued his climb. So you're a troll witch, huh? Sigarther said to the crow, that was dragging herself away from him. He said it wasn't anything personal, but he couldn't leave an angry witch in his wake. He had enough troubles. He would make it fast. He gripped the crow neck of Ingi's stepmother and wrung it, tossing the bird aside. He didn't know that. As long as the egg existed, the troll stepmom could not die. So, in his attempt to be merciful, he only ensured that she would live out her final, I don't know, 24 to 48 hours in complete agony. He found some gold and some eggs, and since the Maiden King told him to gather everything, that's just what he did. Now, the rest of the time in the mountains is like if you combine the excesses of a Marvel movie's trademark final battle with that Scooby-Doo bit, where the monsters are chasing Scooby and the gang through a door, the gang's chasing the monsters... 
It keeps going on for way too long in many different combinations, and the Harlem Globetrotters and Don Knotts appear for some reason. Sigarther, who was being chased by the dragon that apparently lived beneath the troll stepmom's lake, chanced upon Horther and then Velstagandi, who have completely lost control of their herds and are trying to fight them in addition to 50 trolls apiece. Sigarther used his magic ash that he got from his witchy foster mom to calm the herds, and the trio banded together to defeat the other brother, a dragon, 100 trolls, and shepherd a herd of pigs and horses back to the Maiden King before their, quite literal, deadline. Velstagandi was first. The princess pig had passed out when the magic ash hit her, and Velstagandi carried it back to show that none would be hurt. He laid the sow down at the Maiden King's feet, and the Maiden King raised her knife. He was very careful to say that it was still breathing when he brought it in, but found that, when she cut the skin, it came loose easily, and that a princess was inside. Her little sister. Horther came in next, and the foal was the same way. The boar and the stallion were Ingi's uncles, who had disappeared before the troll stepmom even showed her face in the kingdom. Finally, Sigarther stormed in. He had had enough. He did everything she asked. He chucked the gold at her feet, threw the basket of eggs, but he saved one. One that he threw at her face. The court gasped, and someone started taking bets for just how quickly Nutter was going to get murdered, but Ingi, the maiden king, just laughed. She laughed because it was over. Sigurther wasn't having any of it. He was so tired. She had ruined his reputation, tried to kill him so many times, he fought a dragon, dozens of trolls, and... And you still came back, Inky said. She gripped the skin at his neck, the disguise, and lifted it. Wait, you knew? Sigarther asked. Inky nodded. Since she first saw him, Inky and Sigarther married, and despite their enormously dysfunctional relationship, they worked, and they loved each other. Horther and Velstagandi took off their own cloaks to reveal two things. They were attractive younger men, and they were Hogni and Sigmunder, the two boys who had been exiled, but saved, by Sigarther in the first part of the story. And after a shower and not being covered in dwarven metal, they hit it off with the two princesses. The story ends with three weddings, and Sigarther and Ingi ruled Tartaria side by side as they grew old together, and neither tried to kill the other again. Well, too much. I found the story interesting because it obviously frames Ingi's refusal to get married as a curse laid upon her, but she just has the worst guy show up to seek her hand. And I'm not a scholar in this, but it seems like a way for the story to have a strong woman as a ruler, while not alienating sensibilities of the time. It plays lip service to the fact that it's a curse and she might not be making her own decisions. Oh, look how evil she is. But I think we'd be hard-pressed to find someone today who'd be willing to marry any of those guys lose their kingdom, and all personal and political power. It's only when someone she wants to marry comes along who's able to save her sisters and uncles that the curse breaks, when she would have chosen to marry Sigarther anyway. It just goes to show that sometimes the things that seem like curses aren't really that at all, and they might take us to some unexpected places. Real quickly, if you're looking for something else to listen to this week, Best of the Worst is back. It's a fun little twice-a-week show where we talk about the worst villains in comic book history. 
this week, yesterday, there was Ding Dong Daddy, a 60s cool cat weapons manufacturer, and Thursday, it's the Black Tarantula, a sleazy medieval count who found a loophole to living forever. If that sounds interesting, check it out by going to villains.lol or by following the link in the show notes. Once again, that's best of the worst at villains.lol. The creature this week is the Pope Lick Monster from Kentucky in the United States. The Pope Lick Monster is a man-goat sheep, half man, half goat, half sheep, who, despite the name, does not have any taste for popes and instead lives under a trestle bridge over Pope Lick Creek near Louisville, Kentucky. Now, the creature is a tall, cloaked, goat-horned monster who either attacks people with a bloody axe or hypnotizes them and lures them onto train tracks where, if there is a train coming, the option is to either get hit by the train or jump into the shallow creek like 30 or 40 feet below. It's an urban legend with a few different origin stories. Either it was a circus performer who vowed revenge after being mistreated and has lived for years under a bridge being mean to random people, a monster who was being transported by a train that crashed, or a farmer that was transformed after doing satanic sacrifices. None of those are great, but also, when it comes to creatures of the week, none of those are all that surprising. What's most noteworthy about the Pope Lick monster is that it has a real-life body count. Tragically, since 1984, at least 12 people have been injured, five of those people dying because of the legend, with the most recent one being in 2019. Apparently, it's very difficult to hear a train coming, there's no room to stay on the tracks next to the train, and the only way to keep from being hit or falling to your death is to hang for like five to seven minutes on a rusty bar. There are some pictures of the track on the site and some references in the show notes, but it just goes to show, sometimes our own curiosity or fear can be more dangerous than even a hypnotic and homicidal man-goat sheep with a bloody axe. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. The theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.